the In Conversation podcast series, with author, Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. podcast. Please like the podcast, podcast. and subscribe podcast. to this channel. Podcast. Thank you. Have you experienced several failed relationships or been through a divorce? How can you avoid making the same mistakes again? How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes is out now. Hi, my name is Nigel Beckles. My new book is packed with practical and common sense strategies that you can use to make better relationship choices. Now you can discover the dangerous myths about love. If your relationship expectations are realistic, why you could be falling in love for all the wrong reasons. How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes. It's a book that could change your life. Available from Amazon.co.uk. Kindle version also available. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome back to my In Conversation podcast series. My special guest for this episode is the pioneering educator, lecturer, diversity trainer and anti-racism advocate, Jane Elliott. Hi Jane, welcome to my podcast series. Hello, nice to be here. Very nice to have you here. In fact, it's a privilege. So how are you? Well, I'm about average, I guess. I'm in good shape since... Since the last week in January, I've been absolutely fine. We got rid of a big problem the last week in January when we got a new president. When we finally got a president, we've gone for four (laughs) years without one. And now we have one. And it's a real relief to hear someone talking in simple but, but proper English and using the right words at the right time and who has a developed an adult ego state. For four years, we had somebody who had was a case of arrest, arrested development. He had never developed an adult ego state. So he always spoke either like a child or like a parent. I never heard him say anything out of the adult ego state. And that's what caused our whole problem for the last four years. So, Jane, where do you live at the moment? I live in California in the wintertime. And I live in Iowa in the summertime. Spring, summer, fall in Iowa, which is perfect. California, which is wonderful. And how long have you lived in California? I live here for, I've only been back here this year for a month, but I'll be here until the middle of May. Did you grow up there? Well, I grew older in Iowa. I grew up when I left there. If you stay in the town in which you were born long enough, you will not be inclined to grow up nor encouraged to grow up. You'll be inclined to stay as everyone else is and don't be foolish and get out of get out of your place stay in your place and realize what it is that isn't doesn't tend to make you grow up it lets you grow older but it doesn't let you grow up i grew up after i left my home in riceville iowa and moved out into other places in iowa and then when i moved into when i started doing lectures all over the place i grew up a whole lot well you mentioned growing up what was your childhood like oh it was um not average. I was the one. I was the middle of seven children, and brought, raised on a farm. Mother was a casual Catholic. My father was a believing Baptist. So we had the we had a constant war, religious war in our house. But it never got to that point. It was simply we didn't go to church until we were old enough to know what we wanted to do, and then we we then we joined the Methodist Church. The four the three four of us. And sang in the church choir, and that's the only thing. That's that's the extent of our our religious education. And it was quite good because everybody else in the choir was over fifty, and a couple of them were over seventy. And so we learned an immense amount in the Methodist church choir about how to be a fully functioning human being. It was absolutely the best thing that could have happened 
to four adolescents who are on Fool's Hill and we're on our way up and then we could have gone fallen off. But no, those those older people in that choir kept us centered and kept us sensible. And we lived up to their expectations instead of down to the expectations of our peers. It was really the best thing that could possibly have happened to us. When did you become interested in becoming an anti-racism activist and an educator regarding racism? When my husband was running a national tea food store in the north end of Waterloo, Iowa, which was the black section, and he had one black employee, national tea would let him have more than one black employee. And that employee quit and went to college. And the leader of the local NAACP came in and said, we're going to, Daryl, we're going to pick at your store. He said, why are you going to pick up the store? She said, you don't have any black employees. He said, get me a black employee. I want a black employee. You know, they won't let me have more than one. She said, no, we want to pick at your store. So she picketed the store. And that was the first store picketed in Waterloo, Iowa, during the civil rights movement. As a result of that, National Tea got even with them. They closed the store and they moved it to another location. Well, in the meantime, they had transferred my husband to another community and we were going to have to rent our house. We put our house up for rent. Somebody called and said, do you rent to coloreds? And I remember as if it happened yesterday and I'm ashamed to say it. And I said, this is an all white neighborhood. And I knew when I did it, I had done exactly what I had sworn I would never do. I knew I had defected to the enemy. I was just so embarrassed and so ashamed. And she said, okay, thank you. And hung up. And that's the point at which I decided I will never go along with racism again. I will never be a party to that kind of behavior again. And I never have. And not being a part of that kind of behavior, not going along, has cost us friends and relatives and family. And a lot of, has caused me a lot of misery that I, my my children, a lot of misery and my parents that we need never have had if I just hadn't had that experience. But I had that experience. And you can't, that's, I guess maybe that's when I grew up. I didn't become an activist. I just became absolutely unwilling to go along with what I knew was wrong. And judging people by the amount of melanin in their skin is flat out wrong. It is so ignorant that there's no way I can go along with it. There's absolutely no way, way I can I can uh, cooperate with that kind of thing. Well, we're in February 2021. And I, last week I was reading about a Louisiana cemetery who apologized for refusing to bury a local black police officer. And then in the United States, the uh, Civil Rights Act 1964, they banned discrimination and ended the so-called Jim Crow laws. But I wanted to ask you, what do you believe causes racist and racism? Ignorance, pure, unadulterated ignorance. And for the most part, it's self-imposed ignorance. The information is out there. You could go and read and find it and find out where you're wrong and what's wrong with this situation and change your behaviors and change the behaviors of those around you. The racism in the United States of America and all over the world is a moneymaker. Think of the amount of money you would have had to spend to raise that cotton in the early days of this country if it hadn't been for black slaves. Think of the amount of money you would have had to spend to buy the land that we stole from what we call Native Americans, when in fact, those people came from Africa too. Think of the amount of money we could have, we would have had to spend if we had treated people fairly all these years. We don't have to, and we still aren't. And you can write laws until hell freezes over it. But if you don't, if you don't make sure that those laws, we have to make sure people follow those laws and obey those laws. And if we don't, then the laws aren't worth the paper they're written on. But interestingly enough, in this country, 
Laws are written because of the ignorance of the writers. If you read the book of law, the color of law, the book, the color of law, and realize that the people who write the laws to segregate cities and counties and counties and states are people who don't know any better. They really believe that there are several different races, and they really believe that people want to be only with those who are like themselves. They really believe that there is such a thing as white people, and they believe there's such a thing as black people. Human beings do not come in those two colors, white and black. They come in shades of brown. And people need to educate themselves and realize that Black Lives Matter movement is a marvelous movement, except that it's based on the same faulty premise that white supremacy is. Faulty premise that there's more than one race and that there are black people and white people there aren't. You can look at me and see that my hair is white, my shirt's white, and my skin is not. I can look at you and see that your glasses are black, but your skin is not. You and I are members of the same race. There's only one race on the face of the earth. It's the human race. And we are all members of that race. And so is every other human being on the face of the earth. You and I have the same ancestors back there that evolved between 300,000 and 500,000 years ago. And you and I are 30th to 50th cousins. Now, whether you like it or not, that's the way it is. And people have to get used to that and have to accept that and have to appreciate that and have to realize how brilliant those first people, highly melanated people were who came from the area of the equator and managed over thousands of years to populate every landmass on the face of the earth. They did that without any modern technology. And the only reason there are people who call themselves white, the only reason my skin is this color is because we move farther and farther. Our ancestors move farther and farther from the equator. Our bodies produce less and less melanin because we're exposed to less and less sunlight. People need to realize that if they would trace their DNA back far enough, they would find that a percentage of their DNA came from a country in Africa. It's time to get over this nonsense. Black Lives Matter because we all have black in our background. Get over it. It's just this. The whole thing is so, so 14th century. I don't know a single person living today who would be willing to go back to the 14th century where transportation and communication are concerned, but they want to use the language of the 14th and 15th century in the 21st century. It makes no sense. It is totally ridiculous, in my opinion. Well, you mentioned racism is created by ignorance. Do you think a white supremacy mindset can be created? (laughs) Of course it can. And we have proof of it in this country today because we've had four years of having a fool repeat over and over and over and over the lie of several different races. We had a fool in this country who convinced people. He said, I'm not a racist, and then pointed at someone in his group and said, I've got my black person right over there and pointed to the one so-called black person in the room. And she was delighted. I thought, oh, my God, leave the room. She should have left the room. She should have said, I'm not yours. You need to know that. Furthermore, if I'm black, then you're smart. Now, we know you aren't smart. So I guess that means I'm not black. (laughs) And when people say to me, I'm black, I say, right, and I'm tall. And I'm 5'1". That doesn't make me very tall. If you want to deal with unreality, if you want to play word games, I can play those word games. We learned during the last four years that you can appeal to the most ugly inclinations of people and get their approval as long as you sound enough like them as you possibly can. As long as you build a wall to keep those brown-skinned people out along the southern border of the United States, because brown-skinned, and he said, because brown-skinned people reproduce too rapidly. What that said to me was, the man knows the demographics of this country. He knows that within 30 years, 
so-called white people will be a numerical minority in the United States of America. And he's going to try to keep that from happening. He can't keep that from happening. You can't do it. It isn't going to happen. We are going to become a numerical minority because, as, and here's one of the reasons, as the hole in the ozone layer gets larger and larger and more and more sunlight is allowed to enter our environment and hit the skins of those of us who don't have much melanin, more and more of us are going to die of melanoma, skin cancer, and that cancer travels. So we are going to have fewer and fewer pale faces. You need to realize that that's the way it is. He said, we're going to build a, a wall along the southern border of the United States. We keep those people who aren't Americans out of America. What he doesn't realize is that America is not the 48 contiguous states, Alaska, Hawaii, and the, sub, and the islands off the southern coast of the United States. America is everything from the northernmost point of Canada to the southernmost point of South America. Everyone who is a citizen of any of those countries is an American. You can't build a wall to keep out Americans because those are Americans. You see, this is our problem. The problem in this country is indoctrination in place of education. And that's what we have. We indoctrinate students. I know because I've, I've taught or I've taught against the standard elementary curriculum. I did that for years. Because if you use the standard elementary curriculum, you all teaching racism, sexism, ageism, homophobia, and ethnocentrism. That's what our education is about, because that's the way the people who wrote those, those curric that curriculum, those curricular, in the 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s, that's what they believed, and that's what they wrote. And we're still using some of that ridiculous antisocial studies. We need to change the system. We're going to have we're going to have to re-educate the educators in order to change the way education is done in this country. Well, you mentioned demographics in the United States, and I was observing the assault on Capitol Hill a few weeks ago, and I noticed there were demonstrations of Confederate flag waving. So do you think the assault on Capitol Hill was motivated in part by racism and a fear of a shrinking Caucasian demographic in the USA? Of course it was. When you say the assault on, on Washington, on the Capitol, my first thought is a lot of salt, no pepper there. Not many people of color, not many black people. That was an assault. But you know, let me make something perfectly clear here. George Floyd's killing was absolutely horrendous for him, for his family members. But it was a good thing for this country because for the first time, melanemic people have had to see what melanaceous people see all the time. And they couldn't deny that it was happening because there it was right there in front of their faces over and over and over. For three weeks, we paid, they played that tape. Now, some people thought they were playing that tape to show how awful it was. I think they were playing that tape to tell young black males what will happen to them if they get out of line. And I thought it was, they should have shown it and then said, if you want to see this, you'll have to go to the net. We are not going to repeat showing this over and over because what does that say to young black boys and what does it say to their mothers? I'll never forget the mother who stood up beside me on the stage at a very special group of, of uh, college uh, university department heads. Last thing I asked was, does your color give you power? And she paused for a long, long moment. Before, before that, I'd asked all these questions of her and a white male, so-called white male standing there. His answers were all, yeah, he's got power of height and gender and color, weight and height, gender, age and skin color. And she had power in none of those areas. And when I asked her, does your color give you power? She paused for a long, long moment. And then she said, I'm going to say something I've never said out loud before. And I said, and that would be, and that's because she said, because I'm ashamed of it. She said, I have two children. Both of them are girls. Both times when I was pregnant, I prayed that I wouldn't have a, a boy. 
I said, and that's because, and by now there was one tear slowly making its way down that beautiful black face. She said, because I didn't want to think about what he'd have to go through and what I'd have to go through when I lost him. Now think about that. Here is this brilliant, black, beautiful woman, very dark skin, brilliant, has had to listen to this man say that his height gave him power, his age gave him power, his gender gave him power, his skin color gave him power. When I asked him if his skin color gave him power, he said, I never have to think about it. He never has to think about it. She had to think about every moment of it while she was pregnant because she didn't want to have a child, a son, because of the way he would be treated and what she would have to do when she lost him. For the love of God, tell me that we don't have racism in this country. Tell me that all those department heads who are sitting there after she made that statement and crying, tell me that they didn't need to learn that. They needed to learn that. And we needed to watch George Floyd being killed by that cop in order to realize that we've been living in a fool's paradise. We melanemic people have. We've never had to face the truth. Now we're having to face the truth. And I was so proud when all those young people came out in droves to protest what had happened. The only bad part about that was the people who were describing it, the network people said, people of all races are out there. I thought, when are we going to learn? There weren't people of all races out on the street. There were people of lots of different color groups, but only one race. We've got to get over the idea of several different races. There's only one, and that's the human race. While speaking about that, I wanted to ask you about your famous blue eyes, brown eyes exercise. An exercise or experience, an experience that helps you to develop empathy. I didn't create that exercise. I learned it from Adolf Hitler. I was born the year Hitler and Franklin Roosevelt came to power in their respective countries, 1933. And from 1933 to 1945, I listened to my father absolutely infuriated by what he was hearing on the radio and seeing on the newsreels about what Adolf Hitler was doing. One of the ways Adolf Hitler decided who went into the gas chamber was eye color. The Sioux Indians, we were going to learn the Sioux Indian prayer the day I I did that exercise. That was our assignment for the day. It wasn't in the standard elementary curriculum, but that was the assignment as far as I was concerned. And the Sioux Indian prayer said, oh, great spirit, keep me from ever judging a man until I've walked a mile in his moccasins. I decided that if my students didn't understand what we were talking about when we talked about Martin Luther King Jr. and why he was rioting and why he had to be killed, I would allow them to walk in the shoes of a child of color in my classroom for a day. And I decided I would do what Hitler did. And I would base my judgment of those students on the color of their eyes, just as Hitler did during the Holocaust. One of the ways you got thrown into the gas chamber or shot was by having the wrong color eyes. So that day, I did what Hitler did. I did it on a very, very small scale. But four years ago, at the beginning of Trump time, I realized immediately that Mr. Trump was replicating the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise and therefore ideas of the Holocaust on the national level in this country. The very things that he did were the very things that Adolf Hitler did and the very things that I did in a tiny, tiny way. I couldn't believe it. I thought, good Lord, I'm seeing the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise at the national level. What's going on here? And then I read the book, When at Times the Mob is Swayed by Burt Newborn. Everybody should read it because you'll find out in that book that in Donald Trump's bedside table in a locked drawer, he had a book, The New World Order by Adolf Hitler. And the things that he was doing, procedures that he thought were right in governing, he got from Adolf Hitler. Think about that. And then think about other leaders in the world who have been following his lead for the last four years. One person can make a difference. 
One exercise can make a difference. One idea. Somebody has said no power on earth can stop a man with a dream or an idea whose time has come. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. His dream is more alive now than it was when he was living. The idea of one race, one race of people on the face of the earth is an idea whose time has come. And no power on earth is going to be able to stop it. Once people realize that we have been misled, we have been miseducated, we have been lied to long enough now, 500 years of this nonsense is long enough. It's time to put a stop to it. When did you think about conducting the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise? I thought about it the year before, and I didn't do it. But then Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, and then I had no choice. I had, I could not allow my students to be as ignorant as their parents and their teachers were. Couldn't do it. Didn't have the right. I'm, I'm an educator. An educator is one who is engaged in the act of leading people out of ignorance. And you can't lead people out of ignorance if you allow, if you agree to allow people to be separated into white and black, because those two words are polar opposites. White is the color of goodness and purity. Black is the color of savagery and evil. Why in the name of all that's holy are we still using those two words? They're misnomers in the first place, and they are tremendously judgmental and cause us more problems than we need to have in the second place. Why would you do that to a child? Why would you say to a child, you're white, so you're good. You're black, because there's nothing we can do about that. We have little boys, black, so-called black boys in this country, who have been dying, trying to bleach their skin with Hylex or Clorox or something so that they don't have to be black. For the love of heaven, how long will we let this go on? How long are we going to be this ignorant? Because it's pure, unadulterated ignorance. If I can learn this, so can anybody else. What I do is create a microcosm of society in a classroom, a boardroom, a lecture hall, or around my family's kitchen table. Well, you've appeared in several TV documentaries, and you've also appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show at least five times. How did you become involved with being a guest on Oprah's show? Oh, somebody found out about me, and he was a he was a person who tries to book people on different TV shows, and he booked me on Oprah, and, and I thought I was going to go in, and we were going to discuss racism, and instead, uh, she said, uh, well, what can we do? And I said, well, I'll tell you what we can do, and we separated the group according to eye color. Time was really, really interesting, and I thought, I made a difference there. We really accomplished something there. And then I went to her first year anniversary party and realized that some of the questions that were asked during that exercise on the Oprah show were asked by paid audience members. That's what they do for a living. They go on television shows. They ask the scripted questions. I thought, oh, this isn't so good. But I did the Oprah show five times and I finally realized that this isn't what I want to do. What We aren't making any progress here. We're using a lot of words and we're using a lot of time and we're causing exactly the wrong reaction. So the next time she, the sixth time she called me, I said, no, you, uh, one of her people called and I said, you call somebody else because I don't do circuses and they were turning it into a circus and I don't do a circus. I may look like the fat lady in the circus. I may look like the short person in the circus, but I am not going to furnish entertainment for people who don't have anything else to do in the morning from 10 to 11 or whatever, except sit there and be entertained. I'm not an entertainer. So I turned it down from then on. What was the effect of being on Oprah's show after your first guest appearance? Were you recognized in public more or? Yeah, but not in a positive way. (laughs) The first show I was on was the Johnny Carson show. And I got so many ugly, ugly letters from that show that I didn't, I couldn't show them to my students. I showed the good ones to my students. 
but 30% of them were so ugly and so threatening. I've been, you know, I've been threatened with all kinds of death. And I've been, they took me out of Uniontown, Pennsylvania at midnight one night because the teachers that I put through the exercise in a very informal way called the superintendent in the afternoon and said, get that bitch out of town. We're going to shoot her. So, so they got me out of town the next day. And I worked all day in Uniontown the next day, but with uh, practically an armed escort with me all the time when we were, to, we were to leave town the following day. And instead they said, we're getting you out of town tonight. And they raced me to the Pennsylvania Turnpike, three carloads of blacks did so that I wouldn't get shot in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. It's been very interesting. It's been a real lesson in if you put your head above the parapet, somebody will try to shoot it off. So you have a choice. You can just stay low, maintain a low profile and not make any difference and just accept things as they are. I don't think that's what we're put on earth to do, accept things as they are. So are you still a full-time diversity educator? I yeah, I used to travel a lot, but now I'm doing everything virtually like this one. From June until November, I did two or three of these sometimes a day and six or seven, eight or 10 a week virtual speeches. But then I started saying something that really makes people crazy. There are no white people and there are no black people. And the millennials are really angry about that because as one of them said to me last week, I like my black color. I said, fine. If you think you're black, you're black and I'm tall. Nevertheless, <laughs> you, need to, you need to realize that black is not a race and it isn't the color of human beings. But if you want to call yourself black, you go ahead. And I know why you want to do that. You want to get past being a victim. Fine, but don't use a word that is going to cause you more trouble in the future than you've had in the past. Because white folks who think they're white are going to do everything they can to destroy anyone they consider black. That is some of their aim in life. Now, that's what happened on the steps of the Capitol building three weeks ago. They were attempting to destroy an idea. You can't destroy the idea of one race. They were attempting to destroy the idea that you can say ugly things as a president of the United States and continue to be president, even though the people that you have defamed because of your ignorance about skin color voted you out of office. People need to realize that our people of color, our melanaceous and melanotic people are the ones who took Mr. Trump down. They are the ones who swung that election for Biden. And that is driving these so-called proud boys absolutely insane. Well, they were insane to start with. Nobody who is a man calls himself a proud boy. You spend years trying to get past boyhood. And then you get a big gun and you put on some camel clothes and go out and pretend you're a man. When he said to the Proud Boys, stand down, but stand by, I thought, oh, my God, what what is the matter with this man's head? And I know what's the matter with his head. He's a boy and he's proud of it. Well, I have read about the uh, gerrymandering going on in certain U.S. states in terms of the voting system. And even now they're still trying to suppress the vote and trying to introduce different rules like two forms of ID or maybe three forms of ID before people can vote in those states. But going back to your diversity training, I know you've trained in many large corporations in America. (laughs) How do you measure the effectiveness of your work? But the corporations that in which I've done the exercise have, to this day, said it changed the way we operate this, this corporation. Oh. It made our, our people of color and our women appreciate this corporation. They will work harder for this corporation because we have proven to them that we are willing to spend the money and take the chance to have this woman work here. That is great. Well, during the inauguration, only one 
person who spoke, who gave a speech during the inauguration, used the word, the phrase, many races. I think that's progress. I think that says somebody has told them we've got to stop using the word races. We've got to start using the word human beings or the word fellow human beings. We've got to stop referring to the different races because there's only one. Now, it's taken 53 years to get that message out there, but that's not bad. It's taken us over 500 years even to allow people to think about it. Suddenly now, we're going to, you're going to see something really interesting. As the hole in the ozone layer gets larger, and as melanin becomes more and more valuable in your skin, you're going to see more and more people of different color groups mating and reproducing, which is just absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, delightful because they always have until the 14-1500s. It wasn't until those days that it was wrong. Race wasn't a problem. Color wasn't a problem. People were just different human beings, different nationalities, different cultures, different colors, different genders, different orientations. And we had laws against miscegenation. People of different races can't mate. Kind of a silly law, isn't it? Since there's only one race, I think you're going to see such a difference in the next 30 years, that by the time you are my age, people of different color groups are going to be reproducing <laughs> like flies because we pale faces are going to want our, grand, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren to survive. And we are going to be running after those who will help us to have children of color. Now this, I know what some of your listeners, if you play this for anybody, are just going to go crazy because they have been been indoctrinated with the myth of several different races and the idea that people of different color groups whom they consider races have no business reproducing. Well, if that were so, none of us would be here today. Mm -hmm. Now think about that. (laughs) See, the whole thing is so, it is so immature, so ignorant, so unbelievably ridiculous. You received an honorary degree in 2019. What was that for? Uh-huh. Well, I've received two. I received two in two years. And I think it was because they couldn't find another logical person to give it to. I really think it was an act of desperation both times. You see, my name is out there. My face is out there. My shirt is out there on which it says prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. It's out there. And when I walk through airports, if I wear this shirt, it's like, oh, my God, she's here. It has been a blessing and a curse. It's been very interesting. The honorary degree that you received was Doctor of Humane Letters by CSU Bakersfield. I got one just like that from the University of Northern Iowa a year a year previous to yeah. that. I'm delighted with both of them because it says this university was willing to recognize somebody who did something that is totally unacceptable as far as 40 to 50 percent of the population of the United States feels. And they were willing, both of them were willing to say, this is something that is valuable that this person did. That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful compliment. But isn't it absolutely weird that 53 years ago, I did that exercise. It took half a century for somebody to say, this really works. And the man who did the black and white doll studies, Kenneth Clark, the psychologist, said in the introduction to a book that Bill Peters wrote about the exercise, the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise could be the answer to our educational problems and to our racist problems, because it teaches children to empathize with those who are different from themselves. That is the finest statement that has ever been made about the exercise, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And that man knew what he was talking about. Well, I believe sincerely that any and all recognition that you receive for your work is very richly deserved. So, Jane, what are your plans for the future? To stay alive. 
<laughs> well, I think that's all in our plans, especially with the current COVID situation. Yeah, and I'm being very careful about that. No, my plan for the future is to hope that I don't ever have to do this work again. And when Barack Obama became president, I thought, now I don't have to do this anymore. It's going to get better. The things are going to get better. And I wasn't planning on the 40% of the population of the United States that needs to believe in the rightness of whiteness. And I didn't realize that they would go underground and simply get together and plan ways to keep Barack Obama from being successful, to elect people who would cooperate with keeping him from being successful, and then would elect somebody, a Hitlerite, after Barack Obama was out of office. And that's exactly what they did. They elected someone who bases his political philosophy on the writings of Adolf Hitler. And you see, the problem is young people don't know the difference. But people my age remember what that was like. Mm. We're dying off. The good part about the attack on Washington, January 6th, is a whole lot of young people are going to remember how that looked and how those fools looked and how cowardly they behaved and how absolutely unacceptable their behaviors were and how their chants were were vicious, how they how they're they're carrying the Confederate flag into the Capitol building, the capital of the United States of America. They're going to remember that for the rest of their lives. And when somebody comes up and starts another, another trumper comes up and starts his trumpeting, they're going to say, oh, 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 back the truck up here. We've been here before. I recognize this and we're not going to let it happen again. And it will happen again because who, who was it said those who forget the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. But they have, by their idiocy, put in the minds and the memories of a whole lot of American, United States of American citizens, a memory that they will carry with them. And the next time this starts to begin, they will say, uh uh-uh, uh, uh uh, no, we've been here before. We're stopping you now. Mm. So, Jane, how can people contact you? You can find me on jane at janeelliot.com. And when you go there, uh, download all the printed learning materials. The first is a set of typical statements that white folks make that think they aren't racist. The second is the, con- the uh, clarification of those statements, how those who are on the receiving end of them how they appeal to them. The third is a set of commitments to combat racism, 18 things you can do in your own environment to change your own racism. And we all have aspects of racism in our, in our characters because we've been taught it from birth. The fourth is a bibliography. Download the bibliography and read every book on race in that, on that bibliography. And then when you get done with that, you'll have the answers to all of these questions. But the situation is you will have self-educated and you will have given up self-imposed ignorance. And that's what it takes to end racism, ending ignorance. And you can't do that by going to school. They've done studies in this country that prove that the longer you stay in school, the more bigoted you become. Because the longer you're in school, the longer you are reinforced in what you learn grades K through eight. And most of what you learn grades K through eight, except in math and science, particularly in social studies, was part of the indoctrination. It had nothing to do with reality, it had to do with the tale we tell in order to keep some one group on top and the other group where they belong, in their place. Jane Elliott, thank you very much for your time. Very much appreciated. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe. Another In Conversation podcast coming soon.